That's the reason why we call our company Studio NYL is ideas from London, ideas from New York and bringing it to Colorado. And now that's, that's been you know, blown up exp exponentially. We're bringing ideas from all around the world uh, to how, how can we do buildings better and ha have fun. I mean, that's kind of what we're all about. Hi. Hello. 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 Hello and welcome to Architecting. This is a podcast about the lives of architects. About the people and stories behind the buildings that we see around us and the images that brought them to life. And with the very international world that we live in. This show will purposefully be local and narrow. Only focusing on the Colorado community of designers. Hi, I'm Adam Wagner. I'm the host of this show. I'm an architect who's worked for a dozen different firms in three different countries, but for the last five years I've been rooted in Denver, Colorado, where I'm at Open Studio Architecture and I teach at the University of Colorado, Denver. I like connecting with other designers and learning from their experiences, so now I'm broadcasting these conversations with the goal of creating a stronger local community here in Colorado. And that brings us to our guests today, Julian Lineham and Chris O'Hara, founders of the Structural Engineering and Facade Design Group, Studio NYL. So look, I, I definitely have fun with all these interviews, but this one especially with these two guys was, was really fun for me. Chris and Julian are from two very different parts of the world, New York City and London, uh, but they, they really seems like they were, they were made for each other and, and to start this, this firm. Uh, they're, they're two um, fun-loving, talented guys who have an extreme passion for design and for architecture, uh, especially for structural engineers. They worked with some of the biggest-named international architects but brought their talents to Colorado and continued to seek out like-minded designers doing interesting and uh, uh, progressive work. They are extremely active in the AIA and other engineering associations and speak widely at conferences and events. Um, and I, I really just enjoyed hearing some of their stories and talking to them about their experiences of forming NYL and, and of really their, their passion of, of crafting better buildings and environments and, and, and just relationships. And stay tuned after the credits. This episode also includes our extended conversation where we talk about some early Bjark Ingels experiences and um, stories about hanging out with um, Mexican presidents. So I hope you enjoy. Hey, so our goal at Architecting is to strengthen the community of Colorado designers, and nobody is doing this better already than modern in Denver. So Modern in Denver has been striving to bring designers together and to bring people to good design for a long time now. We're excited to be working together with them on this shared goal. For over a decade, they've been crafting fantastically curated and designed content on Colorado designers and projects. So go out now, buy a copy of their newest issue at your local bookstand, subscribe to their weekly email list, and follow them on Instagram. Well, cool, guys. Well, thanks for coming on. Absolutely. I've been looking forward to this one. Uh, you know, I, f I was trying to think back to where we met. I think it was at a, it was like an AIA conference. Yep. And it just, I think maybe through Brian Dale, but 
Yeah, I remember I sitting with you at lunch one day at that last day of the conference. Yeah, yeah, it had to either be like YAG or or the conference. Yeah, once but we, I was just—you guys yeah. are always just the coolest structural engineers who who really care about architecture and 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 you know, me, this new young guy coming in, and and you you really cared about me and kept following up and <laughs> be friends with me, and I've always appreciated that. Cool and structural engineer really set the bar that high. <laughs> yeah, I guess once you started talking about Mexico City, you had me hooked. Like, yeah. It's just share our stories. So it was great. Yeah, yeah, that part of your pedigree is pretty impressive. Well, you know, it's just a it, it's such a short time. It was only six months, but when, I, once with you Tatiana, right? Yeah, with Tatiana Bilbao. Yeah. yeah, but it's like once you get down there and it's just a whole different world that you don't, you don't think about very much, you know, uh, yeah. you know, where you usually kind of like European centric or something like that, but you get down there and it's just this amazing place, great design. And obviously you guys know from all the work you've done there, but. Um, well, the thing that's neat is they want the design. Like we like in our country, we want design when it's a cell phone or a car there, mm -hmm. they want it in buildings. Like they want great architecture. But here it's like uh what kind of countertops do you have <laughs> yeah yeah exactly uh, well that brings us brings us good into this first um difficult question of who who are you guys who who who, who are you two as a as a partnership uh in two sentences go two sentences do we each get two sentences or Oops. is it like nope you you should have you should have made separate companies you had to no, <laughs> two, two sentences each. Yeah, you can go first, Joy. Well, I'm a, I'm a, like to think of myself as an adventurous structural designer. I'm, I'm married to uh, Meg the Explorer, and I've got two amazing mm -hmm. adult kids, Jeremy and Benjamin. But in my work, I love to use uh, strength and elegance and creativity to really help architects get their vision uh, realized, um, and then we can give a uh, more beauty to the world, which is what the world desperately needs through our collaboration. So I try mm. to just do it down to two sentences. Nice. Chris, what do you think? So for me, uh, I'm a problem solving enabler that basically run through a wall to solve the problems of what I'm passionate about. And first and foremost, I'm passionate about my family, my mm. wife and kids. Although many times she'll tell me that she doesn't want the problem solved. She just wants the vent. <laughs> uh, but for the purpose of this podcast, obviously, one of my biggest passions is architecture after my family. So it's, uh, you know, we're just, we're more into architecture than we are in engineering. Engineering just happens to be what we're good at. Hmm. So where, where did that start? So, I mean, you guys came from two pretty different places, but it seems like similar in, in a lot of ways. Julian, where'd you, where'd you grow up? What was, what was home life like? Well, home life, uh, I have a family home. Um, I'm the oldest of three, brother and a sister, um, about 30 miles outside London, southwest, halfway between London and the south coast. Um, but I started my career in London, so I had about 10 years structural experience in London. And uh, I kind of grew up with what I would probably say is bespoke architecture or bespoke engineering, particularly mm. where, you know, I'm, I'm old enough that I was in the, you know, the first five to 10 years of the high-tech architecture phase with Fosters and Rogers and Hopkins and Grimshaw. And so our company was working with them. And, and you know, what you do with the expressive structure is 
I just grew up with that. I just thought it was the normal way of doing things is, you know, you figure out your loads, your forces, what what members you want to use, and, and you sculpt it. And, you know, that's kind of my background. Well, where did that fascination come from that and and getting towards that direction of structural engineering early well, on? Yeah, I mean, my background, so in England, it's kind of weird where you have to specialize really early. At age 15, you have to pick three subjects to do from 16 to 18. And that's the, the two years before college. So a lot of people either focus in the arts or the sciences. So I focused two of the three in the scientists, and I broke the rules and did geography as my third, hmm. which they found it really hard to schedule me. But, you know, that, that sort of was immediately a sense of, I, I don't really live in one of these two worlds. I kind of um, hover between the two but after that I, I had to pick a college major and uh, in England it's more than a major it's everything so I picked engineering because I love maths and physics and uh, in in England at the time it's three years full-time literally nine to five thirty every day is engineering so you don't do any minor subjects you don't do any you just study engineering <laughs> that sounds amazing you come out as a really good engineer but you don't come, <laughs> what was that <laughs> I said that sounds amazing to me. If it if it was just architecture, I didn't have to take anything else in school. Right. And, uh, well, and if and if that's what you want to do, it's great. There were some people <laughs> in the first year that were like, "Oh my goodness," and then they dropped out and figured out how to do something else. But yeah, no, I, I remember in school we called engineering pre-business. <laughs> pre-business, yeah. <laughs> so that's that's kind of my background, and then I just started working um, up in London, uh, some of the big firms up there, and uh, that's how I sort of got my chops. But your, but your, like your father was literally a, a rocket scientist, right? And yeah. Mother was a scientist as well. Right? Yeah. So he, he was a, yeah, he was a, an engineer, sort of an electrical engineering background, but uh, really early on computers. So like I'm talking punch cards, whole room, mm. whole room computers, and he was, he was working for the military of defense and designing like satellite. Um, uh, tracking for the first ballistic missile that the UK was producing. So, mm. so pretty heavy stuff. And then even after that, after he stopped all that, he ended up working for the Ministry of Defense in London and was working in some of the offices off Whitehall, literally in secret chambers that go down under the River Thames that nobody mm. really knows about. And, and that's so pretty now, much all he could tell us. He, he, yeah. So you, it was the official secrets act. He couldn't tell us a thing. Hmm. And then my mother was into computing. She studied, uh, She taught computer engineering. And uh, actually, my first job in London was quite interesting. Uh, one of her computing magazines had an article about this architecture firm in London that was building a three-dimensional building model of London, which at the time in the you know middle eighties was unique. Nobody was doing that. So I just wrote them out of the blue and said, "Hey, can I come and work for you?" <laughs> And they said, come on up. We're starting a nascent structural group inside this massive multi multidisciplinary firm. And uh, as one of the first five structural engineers, they kind of took me on part time to help build the model London and actually use my engineering. So, what, what were they building that in? What, what kind of program? It was a massive, uh, it was like the original microstation from Bentley, but like a digitizing. So massive digitizing table. It was about six foot by six foot with a big mouse and, and a mouse at the time was pretty unique hmm. um so yeah it was unusual stuff i mean it was you know blocks of buildings but they wanted the context for when they were planting their new their new designs in london so I, i'm always pretty impressed by those early adopters of computers like your parents there you know what 
how how you get into that right uh, something so new and then and that desire to try to conquer something new like that yeah you think they, it was both instilled it was both in them and passed on to you yeah and, and you know like many kids these days i got into computers through gaming so um at the time i was literally buying computer magazines and typing the code in <laughs> i'm really dating myself here <laughs> But our office also in London, our office had the first Macintosh, um, which somebody um, brought in for like more of the project management side of things, scheduling and stuff. But, hmm. but yeah. Was... And Chris, what about you? So you're not from London, right? No, I'm I'm the New York. I'm the NY and he's the L. You're the NY. So um, I actually grew up in Levittown. Uh, you may know mm. this from architecture school, but that's the first suburb. It's like the beginning of that problem. <laughs> So, you know, every third house was the same. And uh, so I grew up in the suburbs when I was little and then eventually moved um, back into Manhattan and lived in Hell's Kitchen, which is fantastic. Uh, but hmm. I, I kind of came in the architecture a little more obliquely in that I, I was, I became an engineer to do bridges. My, my fascination living in New York and constantly coming in and out of the city and is is the the heroic suspension bridges or you know, the Hell's Gate Bridge, all these different bridge typologies, which were elegant in form and, and um, how they dealt with force. I was like, that's what I want to do. So, you know, I went to school and took all the engineering classes, came out, even scored a job, and then the job disappeared because there's no money. <laughs> or more appropriately, there's no appropriations from the government. It's probably a better way to say it. So I, I went out and just got a job. <laughs> and uh, the first one, um, I started working on, like, elevated trains, and the power substations that um, on the contractor side, I was working for a contractor as a site engineer. And then uh, I found out they were owned by the mob. So uh, I was told to promptly quit. Um, and then I started doing more like civil work. Um, it was a survey crew, did some design a few roads, but eventually got to do this uh, park, which was uh, on the waterfront in Long Beach. And it had a little bit of everything. So pier, uh, boardwalk, boat launch, you know, all kinds of play structures, a building, you know, there's a little bit of everything you can imagine. And I, once again, I'm still a field guy. So I just latched myself on to the various crews and learned as much as I could. And uh, that started giving me enough skills. I can go find a real design job. Hmm. But what I, I'm really interested about that idea of growing up in Levittown. So were you one of the, your family was one of like the earlier, earlier families in there or um, what, what was it what was it like growing up there did it did it feel and seem different it was they were second owners of, of the home so levittown was built for people coming back from world war ii and um, eventually it became a, a place that was affordable for um people who worked in the city like firemen cops etc uh to be able to live there on their wage and the houses were actually in a lot of ways, very cleverly designed in that when they designed them, it was for the GIs coming back who basically just, you know, had a significant other and that's it. They didn't have kids yet. And they were made to be easily expandable, like shockingly hmm. easy to blow these houses up. And um, now it looks like Queens. The house is all enormous because everybody's maxed out what they can do with them because it's just so expensive to live there. Um, but back then, like our house had, no dormers, no additions. It was just me as a kid. I was an only child. So uh, hmm. it was interesting. Um, it was actually pretty good as a kid because uh, Levittown had nine pools. 
Like, so you could easily walk to like a reasonable park and a pool. Maybe you had to bike if you're a little further away, but you know, having access to swimming and just various things like that was great. Um, and uh, since we were more in the second generation of Levittown, it was it was wonderfully diverse. You know, it's it, it's one of those things where I'm not used to Colorado in that sense of everybody's the same. Where there, everybody's different, <laughs> and it was it was fantastic mm. in that regard. So I did like that. Um, I, I I can't complain about growing up. It was fantastic, but it, it really wasn't until later when I started to see what real urban planning and things like that were that I started to know the difference. Because when you're a child, you just don't know anything else. Right. Because then, when did you when did you move to Hell's Kitchen? How old were you then? I was in my. That's a, I was like. That's like an opposite. Yeah, I was like a twenty. Uh, twenty. Okay. So it was it was definitely much older. It was in my my parents grew up in Brooklyn and then moved there. So uh, I, I still got all the um, let's call it the uh, snarkiness of the New York personality that that was there. I uh, had my accent kind of purged for me through uh, abuse from people in college, making fun of uh, <laughs> pronounce R's and things like that. But um, where'd you where'd you go to school? Notre Dame. What was that decision like? Yeah, why did you choose there? Um, at first, I only applied there as a joke because, you know, I'm Irish, clearly, with the name like O'Hara. And uh, I went and visited it, and I just completely fell in love with the place. It was, it was really fantastic. I also had a criteria. I had to be at least six hours away from home. Otherwise, I figured my parents would be there every weekend. So um, that, that was a criteria. But uh, I, I probably had better opportunities at other engineering schools. Like Rensselaer was probably the best engineering school I got, I got into. I actually got in everything I applied to, but I only applied to five. But uh, I don't know. Notre Dame is just a special place. And uh, it, it definitely is a huge element of the friends I have now and how uh, my values have evolved over time. And yeah, it's, my wife's actually from Notre Dame, even though we didn't uh, date in school. We knew each other, but uh, we didn't become a couple until like a decade later. <laughs> But it's, it's so much of my life is based on that place. Um, maybe not my career as much, um, but definitely my life. So what was that, uh, you know, for, for architecture, they're, they're very clearly known stylistically as a, you know, a classical kind of school. Do they, do they, they have the same kind of bent with structural engineering or well, what's, engineering, what's the school like there? They, they had nothing to do with the architecture school. It was a complete wasted opportunity in my opinion there is you know obviously some very passionate architects there and i know that i know more architects now after leaving notre dame than i did at notre dame mainly because as you know as an architect you didn't get to leave um <laughs> studio much but um exactly yeah I, it's it's remarkable it's like we we're engineering an absence of architecture like there was no instilling of a passion for architecture in, in engineering school which was really horrible and pathetic in some ways. Uh, technically, it was good. I mean, we learned all kinds of things. I worked um, with people operating one of the better wind tunnels in the country at the time. So, you know, a lot of complex wind analysis. I got to do a lot of research on that as an independent study. I mean, it was it was solid. It built the, the framework of engineering, but I can't say it prepared me to work in architecture, which is... yeah. Funny. That's interesting. You know, Julian, you coming out of school and going right into like 
being in this amazing space with the, with at the peak of high tech architecture and like expressive structure, right? And it such a melding of the two, and you come in and seeing that, like that's a pretty obvious way to ignite your passion for architecture. Chris, how did you? How did your kind of passion for architecture come? Mine in? came at a company called MG McLaren. Um, and they they picked me up uh, as kind of an experiment because I was you know a field guy as I mentioned, and they had another older guy on the on the office, Jim Culkin, who uh, was pure field when he came in, and uh, they trained him up to be a designer, and he's one of their better designers, a lot of reality based stuff. So like, let's do it again, but we're gonna do it with somebody who's like young and um they even gave me a written test which like i bombed the written test on all the design questions but i got all the trick questions right so like okay he's our guy <laughs> i was like okay i'm in and um i started doing just crazy structures um amusement park rides um hmm. rolling stones bridges babylon to like stuff like that and then a couple of buildings here and there and one of the things we also did was uh, uh, structural glass before there was facade designers they glass was just about how transparent can you make the facade and tensile systems and you know i was into cable structures so i was you know well suited to it and um i got to work on the rose center for earth and space at the museum of natural history uh designed by Polshek, uh who's now mm -hmm. aeneid um and so we did the entire enclosure from an engineering perspective so the glass the substructure the roof everything and it's all sculptural steel with tension trusses and I fell in love with architecture right there. When I saw the rigor and the effort and the thoughtfulness that went into everything, I was like, I'm here, this is what I want. <laughs> and um, I went from just, what is the craziest thing we could build to really wanting to know more about architecture. It wasn't about just the technical aspects of it. It was like, how do I, how do I make something special? Hmm. Julian, what was the, one of the, the best moments of, of your early career working with some of those guys like Grimshaw or Foster? I think just, just some of the concept design meetings. Uh, I remember we had a meeting. Um, it was for a competition for the Museum of London. Um, and it was with, uh, we got asked to team up with Ian Ritchie. So meeting Ian Ritchie and just sitting there in the same room, just watching him sketch away was just insane. Um, uh, unfortunately, that project didn't really go anywhere, but um, basically our office was so big. We had, at the time, there were, it ranged between 300 and 600 architects in the office. And so as an engineer, the great thing was a lot of the work in, in London is done through design competitions. So you'd have the architects in the office just say, we're putting together a competition over the next two weekends. Who wants to come in and uh, work on it? So I just, every opportunity I could, I'd just join the competition and see what they were doing and give us, give them the engineering thoughts, you know, uh, you know, big picture thoughts, but enough to solidify the competition boards um, and their ideas. So that was amazing. I mean, just the opportunities, you know, observation towers in Glasgow, buildings in Tokyo that floated in baths of oil because of the seismic, you know, you name it. It was just some insane competitions. Hmm. So that kind of, that got me uh, totally hooked. It's it's hard to come down from that those kind of projects, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. We've got to sleep at some stage. Yeah, that's true. That's true. 
about saying you you don't want to do like uh, highway bridges after that, or or, or at least not normal ones. But uh, yeah. so then, how how did you two guys come together from across I, the coast? I met my wife Meg in London. She'd come over to, after after finishing college at Northwest, and she went traveling around Europe, and uh, she ended up um, coming to work in my in that big firm. Uh, mm. She was working in the at the time, this, we had a specifications department. Can you believe this? Eight people sitting there just writing specs all the time. So, because uh-huh. because Americans know how to type and British people don't, she got hired <laughs> immediately. <laughs> and uh, we just met at somebody's leaving party, um, kind of hit it off, and and spent a few years sort of dating and uh, staying around London. And then eventually, her sister had moved down to Denver and we, we vacationed a couple of times out here and thought, wow, this place is pretty special and never thinking we'd ever move here. But a few years later down the road, you know, we had a little kid in a minute flat in London and, you know, the joke about putting the kid in the bottom drawer, of the chest of drawers wasn't a joke because there was nowhere else to put it. So we thought, well, should we make a big move? And I said, well, well how about Denver, you know, and, and I phoned around and spoken to a lot of engineering firms and they were very gracious and you know would talk to me and uh, we just one day just decided to buy some plane tickets and go and camp in my sister-in-law's basement for, <laughs> for a month to try and find a job <laughs> you know what are you do in your youth <laughs> move continents <laughs> yeah easy. So, uh, and then you know i found a job at a, an engineering firm in boulder and eventually after a few years that's how chris and i linked up i can let chris tell that part of the story yeah, so I had uh, moved to a British firm after the one I was doing the, <laughs> the Rose Center at, working mostly with Vignoli, but you know I was like the only American at first for like a year, hmm. and um, eventually after a few years of just insane amount of work, you know, sleeping under desks, craziness like that, I'm like I came out, you know, I think it was like three years before I got a vacation from that company, and I'm like, you know what, someday I'm going to move to Colorado. I'm going to go reverse uh interview a couple of companies and just see like can i come here because i was spoiled rotten in new york i was working with star architects left and right like my client list then was like uh bagnoli genie gang Vito Acconci, and kpf those are like the four clients i was primarily working with and bagnoli i did almost everything he did and so i come out here thinking okay let's see what, what what's going on in colorado can i be you know satisfied and um I met Julian in, in one of those interviews and, you know, I went home thinking, okay, maybe in five years, I'm ready to move to Colorado. And then Jen, Julian just didn't stop calling. <laughs> like it was incessant. Cause like when we interviewed, like we knew all the same people, like, even though I, yeah. I, I yeah. never worked in London, I just went over for like the Christmas party a couple of years. Uh, but you know, the, the various like hierarchy of like the big engineering names in London, I knew, and obviously Julian knew them from being there and we just kind of hit it off. Like it was very similar spirits of as far as what design's meant to be as an engineer, as opposed to the very reactionary nature that most firms had here. And um, yeah, so he just kept calling, calling. <laughs> and especially I'm like, you know what? I don't need to be working 20 hours a day. I can, I can go to Colorado. The other one that helped me decide to move was uh they don't really do it anymore, but they used to have the uh, Vanguard in um, Arch- Architecture Record, like the Arch Record 2 mm-hmm. section, they'd have like the design Vanguard. And uh, uh, Scott Lindenow from Studio B was featured. 
Mm. And the quote that I remember vividly, that was definitely one of those like straws that made me want to move is uh, he described the firm as fighting the scourge of antler chandeliers in Colorado or an Aspen. Colorado. <laughs> and you know, if you know Scott's work, it. I mean, it's, it's definitely, if there's an antler chandelier in any of those houses, it's in there as some kind of joke that hopefully the owner gets, you know, it's, <laughs> It, it it was it was one of those things going yeah I can work out here <laughs> I I mean just change scale instead of convention centers I was gonna do houses so I'm like I'm good with that let's as long as it's good design I don't care good design doesn't matter what the scale is uh, so uh, eventually he convinced me to move and we started working together at Lawrence yeah we had about three years there um, working on some some fun projects there was some you know crazy pedestrian bridges and other cool event centers the longmont museum we, we did some fun stuff um, but eventually it came time to decide to go out on our own what was that like i'm always interested in that story so how did that come about it was my fault I, I i just <laughs> we kept getting dragged into things that we didn't care about um just you know for the business you know because it was a multi-discipline firm and buildings were by far the afterthought. Um, so there was roads, bridges, trails. I mean, they did so many trails. There was an entire trails division. Um, and, you know, the roads division was just struggling and they needed help. And they kept dragging us in to help them. And we're like, this guys, just cut it loose. Just say no. <laughs> like, we don't need it. It's, it's losing money. You know, the team's not, you know, got the right attitude. Let's, let's just move on. But they made, they like they made a decision, no, we have to save this. And it just started dragging everything down. And I was trying to build like a special structures practice as well there. So all the cable and pencil structures, uh, structural glass, things like that. We we're trying to build that practice in Colorado. And eventually I'm just like, you know what? This isn't design anymore. This is this is management. This is not what I want to do. I'm I'm here to design. So um, that company in New York I worked for, the British firm. It was all kinds of rock stars who worked there. They, like the people who evolved from there are amazing, uh, doing great work. And one of them is a friend of mine who moved back to Australia. Because, like I said, I was the only American for a long time. And um, he, he basically said, "You should just come down here." Because so I went for like a three-week vacation to Australia while working there. And he's like, "You should just move here." And it was awesome. It was great being in Australia. I'm like, yeah, all right, I'll do that. So I walked up to Julian. I go, Julian, I'm gonna I'm gonna move to Australia. And we started talking. He goes, give me a month. We'll start our own firm. Now, the big difference between Julian and I is I was single with little responsibility uh, whatsoever. And he had two children. Easy. <laughs> so, you know, for me, it was like easy. And he's, and he's the one who had all the bravery and all, all the uh, all the things that are impressive and making the move. Um, but, yeah, it's like, okay, let's do this. And uh, yeah, it felt right though. And I mean, yeah, there's the scary moments like the when you when you leave the door and you and you start up the next morning. Uh, we were working out of Chris's house, and you know, we'd walked away without any clients. We thought, okay, we're going to do it our way. We're uh, we actually spent the first six weeks. It was fantastic going around talking to everybody that we'd never had the chance to talk hmm. to. Try and. Well, kind part of, of it was do, so. we were afraid of this yeah. inherent bitterness of the firm we left that we did not approach anybody we'd worked with. So 
you know, mm-hmm. you talked like with Joseph about like, you know, starting the company without a, a job. We had to like ignore mm-hmm. all our relationships. <laughs> like anybody who is paying us to do yeah. the, the kind of work we want to do in Colorado, we couldn't talk to. <laughs> so we went out and just said, who do we want to work with that we don't know? And we just started meeting. Them. So. Hmm. But the cool thing is within a year, everybody that we used to work with had come back and we were working with them again, but mm-hmm. they had approached us. As long as so we don't make the first good. call. <laughs> what, yeah. was the, what was the quote from Jeremy? Was it Jeremy from... was about the running away? Oh, my son. Yeah. My, Chris came around to, to say hi and, and meet my kids for one of the first times. And Jeremy turns around and he said, is that the man you're running away with, Dad? <laughs> <laughs> is that the man you keep calling all the time and and yeah yeah he was, and, he was pretty and staying at his time. house and yeah uh, yeah <laughs> so it was it was like a hard it was a hard six six weeks but then then the oh no i wouldn't say six and, weeks well, i don't know if i'm quite on 259 oh, no. days or whatever it was but um yeah well, we got a couple of jobs pretty quick um, was, um, paul hutton was gracious yeah. enough to let us design his house that's project number one, isn't it? Four thousand one. Yeah. Um, yep. There's a net zero house in Sedalia, where you know, since we had also since cool. we had nothing else to do, all kinds of fun, expressive moves that we were allowed to play with, and we're just giving him ideas after ideas and see which ones he liked. Because otherwise, we're just setting up our marketing materials, deciding what business cards look like. So uh, that was really the only design job in the office at first. Was it a an anxiety kind of time, or what was was oh, money? Okay, so it was, and well, we but, didn't really have. We didn't but have you knew money. Yeah, we didn't really yeah. have money coming in for about eight months. It was crazy, but uh, you know, did a lot of exercising during that time, <laughs> trying to get rid of the stress. But... <laughs> it, was, it was good. So then, so that 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 Paul Hutton project was first, and then what what came after? How did was it the kind of projects that you, you had wanted, you know, were you able to hold out for those projects or after that eight months of not eating? Well, you decided, we definitely took I'll a take lot some of different some trails. projects. Like there's a whole genre that we could make a website out of that uh, could be called pissers in the park, which are basically just restrooms, <laughs> restroom facilities that go with parks that we did for people. But, um, you know, it, it was definitely one of those things. It took us a while to be able to get to a point where we can say, this is the only kind of work we're going to go for. Back then, we took the work to keep the lights on. Oh, yeah. And um, I remember there's, there was yeah. one of the architects I spoke to, and they're going to go unnamed because I don't want to get them in trouble, of just did awesome work all the time. Like, there was there were no dogs uh, of projects. And I, I go to him, like, how do you guys do this? Like, this is what I want to be. I want to do nothing but great work all the time. You know, I don't want there to be this little box that doesn't make the brochure. I want to... I want to just always hold the standard great design or nothing. And he basically says like, Oh, well, I re- if we don't have jobs for a few months, it really doesn't matter. I don't need the money. And I was like, wait a second. Couldn't you have told me this shortly before we started the firm? <laughs> Cause I'm sitting here modeling like our goals and yeah. aspirations based on, okay, once we get established, we'll just start, you know, having this, you know, the design's got to have some level of aspiration and whether that level of, you know, aesthetic or whether that's trying to do good for the world, whether that's a building performance thing. I mean, there's all different things that are great design. It's not always this look at me thing. Um, But I didn't realize that 
you couldn't just have high standards like that immediately. We had to we had to feed uh, well mostly Julian's children because I could just eat ramen and stuff. But um, <laughs> kids like ramen, yeah. <laughs> they just eat more of it. Yeah, it helps to start a firm if you're independently wealthy. So yeah. yeah. That's that you know all the check boxes on know. the list of should we do this? That was the one we forgot to check. Um, we were very lucky though. Within a few months, we had a really cool theater project um, that kept us going for a. So well, what was that? Denver, was that Denver the kind of Party first? Yeah. yeah, and that was in the first yeah. year that we got because yeah. a lot of my experience in New York um, was at theaters. I was doing a lot of theater retrofits uh, for Broadway shows when they turned the show over. So like, you know, reconfiguring the theater to be able to do the uh, Lion King stage that spins and raises, or like the Phantom of the Opera, um, chandelier drop. Hopefully, that's not like giving away what happens in the in the play. But um, <laughs> but like all these effects, like I was used yeah. to doing that in theaters, and then when I was at um, Doris McFarlane, the British firm, I did the Kimmel Center with Vignoli in um, Philadelphia, which is a concert hall and um, recital theater is massive uh, complex. I did a theater with Jeannie Gang, so it's like theater like was in my blood. So when we started talking about work, the theaters are the ones that came in first that once we got past the houses, it, which houses were always a big part of what we do still are, but uh, the theaters helped launch us like, Oh, these guys did this theater they can do this. They can do this. And uh, it was definitely a launching point. Yeah. Especially since at Loris, a lot of our work was K to 12. Um, so being that it was at Kent Denver, it started showing people like, Oh, these guys could do schools. They're not some, they're going to be around next hmm. week kind of thing where I'm not sure everybody was sure about that the first year. That was the other cool thing when we started out was, I mean, we were approaching, say, some of the medium to larger firms. And even if they couldn't or didn't want to risk taking us on initially, they'd pass our name down to friends who had smaller outfits. And our name got around through this amazing grapevine of entrepreneurs and people who had just started their firm. So the first few years were kind of cool talking business and, uh, you know, working with a lot of people that were in the same kind of boat one or two years in. I mean, like we, we did a lot of early work with Joseph Montalbano mm. and people like that. And it was great. Who were some of those other ones? They were kind of early. In situ design. So it was Joe Calistra and, um, Oh yeah. And David Carnicelli mm -hmm. and uh, Kathy Bellum was doing the development side. Like we, the first project, well, maybe the second project technically that we did, was, but the big one was uh, Merchants Row. So 36 and Champa. It's, it's the one that's kind of inspired by um, the Habita Hotel in Mexico City by Enrique Norton with the kind of frosted and transparent glass. And um, hmm. so, yeah, they, they self-developed that in the neighborhood to prevent people from coming in and doing bad development. So their the logic was they get a bunch of neighbors together and develop the property themselves in a intelligent way. Uh, what else? Bothwell Davis George. Um, I'm trying to I'm losing my mind right now. There's a lot of there's a lot of the early like um, people doing multifamily residential in the, like, the Highlands neighborhood or the ones that were the, that's how a lot of the young firms got started. Like Studio HT and we all like would yeah. grow up together and yeah. um, have drinks and discuss how we uh, need to figure out how to do business better and things like that. It was, it was really interesting. I mean, they're all 
you know, very influential to us in terms of how to build the practice. And, you know, since we're all in the same boat of figuring this out as we go along, those were the people we talked to. We never really ever talked to other engineers about how to run a business. We always talked to architects about it because they were the ones we were friends with. So, um, yeah. yeah. Like, well, that's smarter. You know, you're, you're going with people that you can hire you. Well, I, yeah. I just talked to architects and no architects can hire me. It's, I need well, to be talking to somebody else. One of the best pieces of advice we were given a year or two in was sponsor the bar at the AIA Design Awards, and we mm. made a lot of friends. <laughs> it also we did that for several at. years. It was, um. uh, it was great. <laughs> <laughs> Architects like to drink. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you do, you you do it do that up well those tequila parties. Uh, oh, yeah. Got to so, keep it going. So then, how did when did the kind of international work with NYL come about, like especially Mexico City and and um, Roshkin and well, that that was our friend uh, Gerardo Salinas. Who, so he was at AMD at the time, and and he tried to bring us in. We'd met him. We, well, we what have we met him, Chris? He he won we, a, a, a Denver, year. And actually, we didn't really know Jerry that well. We knew Michelle, not Michelle Roki, but Michelle Orsina yeah. Lopez, uh, his wife at the time, and we we'd yeah, worked a lot with her, and so we got to know Jerry. And then, so when Jerry won Young yeah. Architect of the Year, uh, he got to uh, pick, be on the, the, the committee for the conference, and he got to start helping to pick who's the keynotes are going to be. And uh, so he's from Mexico mm-hmm. City originally. And uh, he's like, we got to stop doing, just recycling U.S. architects all the time. Let's, let's bring in some international people. And the AI is like, no, 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 we don't have the budget. He's like, you can bring them from Mexico City. They're cheap. So at the time, he brought in Michelle, but it, and Michelle had just done a competition that they, he won with uh, Bjarke Ingels, who had never done anything in the U.S. at this point. Nobody even knew who he was in the U.S. yet. And they did the Tamayo Museum, mm-hmm. which yeah. is a riot in itself mm-hmm. in that it, it is a museum that is a bar building that cantilevers out of a hillside. And then shortly from the end, there's two other bars that come out from the side. And it's a, a Jewish-funded art museum. So basically, it's a cross sticking out of the hill. And Michelle's like, well, it's okay. I'm Jewish. I can do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so like that's that. what he and Bjarke were presenting <laughs> primarily. And um, so Jerry brought them in. And the, Michelle and Jerry really got to know each other through that. And eventually, uh, Michelle started winning competitions that were going to get built. Because uh, a lot of these just kept being unbuilt, unbuilt, unbuilt. Because Michelle was literally a rock star. Like, he was a drummer in an 80s pop band. Like, mm-hmm. he, everybody yeah. knows him. So, he needs to start getting things built. So, he's like, I'm going to bring in somebody I trust. And he met Jerry. And so, uh, Jerry became his partner. So, uh, the first project we did. Now, the other thing going on at this time is this is right around 2008. <laughs> so... You know, there's there's the willingness to take some risks at this point because there wasn't a lot of work out there. So, um, like, yeah, okay, we'll go down to Mexico City, meet Michelle again, because he didn't remember us. We were just kind of people enjoying the conference, and um, we interviewed for this project called High Park, which is um, a, a mixed-use building in Monterrey, Mexico, it's like ten stories above grade. 
And I think the thing to probably know at that point is the tallest building we had done as a firm was probably four stories in the U.S. We did, we kind of kept that on the down low, <laughs> though. Uh, studio and Wild, we'd done taller, but prior to that, but the Studio and Wild, we hadn't done it. And we yeah. went and interviewed for the project. And uh, when I used to present these things, I used to describe the interview process of us. It was Arup, Borough Happold, and us. So the slide, the next slide would have the, you know, the names are on them. The next slide would start showing uh, Arup, I think, was like 10,000 people at the time. Borough Happold was like 4,000. And we were four. <laughs> so uh, we were subtly cheaper, as you might imagine. Uh, a little bit less overhead. Um, so the slogan for a little while that was more in the bar was, uh, we're cheaper than Arup. So that's how we were getting work. And um, we started working with Michelle and Jerry and, uh, and they're, they're both such great, wonderful hosts. So when you go down, they just, they, they treat you like, you know, dignitaries coming in from another country. And we just became really ingrained in, in their office. And it got to the point where I'd go down to, you know, basically about a, once a month for a couple of years. And, you know, after I say hello to everybody, you know, uh, give away the, the peck on the cheek, which I still took some getting used to. I'm sure you got used to that really quick. I'd walk the pinup wall. Like I wouldn't even start talking about meetings mm -hmm. yet. And I'd walk the pinup wall and I'd just start marking up the pinup wall, even the jobs we weren't on. It was like doing crits in school. And, you know, that, that was how the relationship developed. And we just constantly started playing and experimenting and messing around with stuff. So like some of the ideas back then are coming up on projects with Michelle now. Like they didn't work, they didn't work them. They didn't make, mm. they didn't make the cut for what we we're trying to do, or they weren't the right appropriate decision, but now they are. And so that, that whole dialogue about design uh, really was going on there. And after that high park project got started and they really clearly liked the dialogue with us, we just started doing everything. I mean, we'd do the competitions with them. Mm. We'd be working on projects before they even win them. And it was just always messing around with stuff. And then, then we go build it. <laughs> uh, so, and the, and once again, it was that whole attitude towards design. We talked about a little bit earlier, of, you know, they want design as a culture down there so much more than we do in our building. So the threshold for doing something a little bit less conventional was a lot easier to sell. Um, we still were bringing, just like you as architects bring precedent studies to your clients. We're doing the same thing for engineering and we're doing it for the facades um and really a lot of the work we're technically the structural engineer but um they're primarily facade projects and that got us into all kinds of tangents that made us a lot of who we are today of you know digital fabrication with the liverpool store and getting in really tight with the guys at zaner and mm. uh, they're so kind enough to let us basically go play with and learn all the toys in the shop so that we could try to figure out how to design with them. And then um, the Cineteca was my first foray into computational design with Grasshopper. And then we became mm -hmm. hooked. <laughs> you know, it's like all these different mm -hmm. things we had mm -hmm. the opportunity to experiment with. And uh, it was really good fun. Well, and that, that as a firm, I mean, it had to open you up so much. Just, just the um, aggressiveness or like freedom within how he works and the projects that he does. And then, Mm -hmm. especially that climate right is so much easier than than here mm -hmm. you can open things up so much more and the kind of regulations um well there's also yeah economically it's very different there in that 
um, expressive design is easier to do there because anything we do to reduce material uh, saves costs much quicker than it does in the United States. Whereas I always describe there's this balance on the cost of uh, labor and material. Whereas in the US, just due to the cost of labor and the extra detailing and effort it takes to do you know, this wonderfully elegant design that saves material, a big dumb beam is always cheaper in the United States, which is, as an engineer, frustrating. Mm -hmm. Especially one who came out thinking, I'm gonna design these bespoke bridges. And the reality is most of the bridges you see are dumb precast girders or steel girders rather than these elegant arches that are cable supported things that use like half the material. Uh, the material in the United States is way cheaper than the labor, whereas down there, the labor is super cheap. So if we come up with a scheme that I can cut the material cost in half, I'm effectively like cutting a third out of the budget because <laughs> the labor is that ridiculously cheap. And, yeah. um, it's liberating as an engineer. It's fun as can be. Um, and we could be expressive as hell and it's still saving money. Well, it's cool. That, I mean, like uh, thin shell concrete. I mean, we did this project, Satellis, uh, which ended up just being the, the initial phases, concept, schematic design, but that was all thin shell concrete arches. It was fantastic to even think about doing that, which you know, as engineers, we want to do that more and more with minimizing materials and carbon and everything. But, uh, you know, we'd never have a chance of doing that here in the States. So. Yeah, there's well, such a, a lineage Dela. of that down there, right? Yeah, Felix yeah, Dela. Being and liberated Dela. to be able to do crazy uh -huh. things with yeah, more is nice. Um, it is definitely a pleasure. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so those, those projects really, really helped us a lot. Um, and at the same time, we were fortunate enough to get our first project with Anderson Mason Dale, uh, which was the um, Colorado School of mm -hmm. Mines Petroleum Engineering Building with uh, BCJ. So these are working in parallel that, you know, these really bespoke projects that um, had the kind of design aspirations we endeavor to have as a firm were all happening at the same time. And we're doing a lot with Roth Shepard, who does every project we've done with them is beautiful. You know, so there's there's all of a sudden this portfolio of good work that just kind of came out of nowhere since nobody was really looking at anybody's portfolios during the recession. Um, and then what ended up happening is uh, we lectured at Facade Plus, but the way we did it was a little covert in that um, Jerry was brought in to be the keynote for this Facade Plus in Chicago. And I was going to present immediately after. And so Jerry gets up and shows all of Michelle's work. He didn't even tell me what he was going to show, which made it hard for me. Um, so all the work he'd done with Michelle. And um, throughout it, he just complained about the engineering. It was like about how hard it was to get these things built right <laughs> and all that. And then I got up immediately after and did a very technical lecture of how everything came together and how how we use digital fabrication or computational design, just showing, you know, the, the the rigor that went into it, and of course complained about the architect the whole time. And it became a big joke. And then we all did we both did uh, the Q and A together, and we were just laughing our butts off the whole time. And yeah. it was fun as can be. And like the audience was obviously the kind of architects we wanted to work with. There, you know, the Facade Plus conference is usually more on the inspirational side than the technical side and uh 
So like still one of our best friends this day was in the audience. So Brad Prespa, who had been at Sasaki and, and now he's at a company called Place Taylor. But he brought us into Sasaki. And then Sasaki launched us on a whole other level of international work. So, um, you know, we came, we were brought in because they knew we worked in Mexico and we were doing uh, the tech campus in Monterrey. So we were doing, and Sasaki is hmm. interesting in that you don't get a building, you get four to five buildings at a time. And so, yeah, so we're like doing uh, a football in everything stadium, in between. Yeah. massive lot, six story library, um, rec center or a wellness center, and then this little uh, wonderful uh, gem of a building that's just meant to be like a student gathering place called um, La Careta. And, uh, and they just like we didn't do that with the Ondo building on that campus, which was nice. But yeah, I mean, yeah, that's it was fantastic. And um, so since then, we've done work. We have projects going up with them in Lima right now. We have some in China, where else? India, Afghanistan. But we'll never do a site visit there. I mean, it's crazy the work that they brought us into, and then they started introducing us <laughs> to people. And it's just, it, it becomes a small world architecture. Like once, once you find people who have the passion for the kind of work you like to do, it becomes really easy to find each other. Um, and we've been lucky in that regard. Yeah, it seems, it seems like you guys have really kind of partnered up at different phases almost with different architects and, and created these partnerships and, and grown a lot, right? I mean, I guess... Still, what are you right now? Thirty-ish kind of people. Oh, we're up to eighteen. No, right. not even we just that? hired Sarah. Eighteen. Eighteen. And so, <laughs> so is is that is that been a choice then to kind of to stay that size? And has it been hard not to just try to chase everything that's amazing or chase everything and yeah, keep we, your roles decided, where you want it? Well, we decided what about four years or so ago to try and stay about this size so that Chris and I could stay more involved with the design mm. i mean i think at the time you're right we could have just blown up to 40 or 50 people potentially over a period of years but uh, i think it was more interesting for us to you know stay that involved and that's part of what we do is chris and i like to be involved in all aspects of the project right from initial concept all the way through seeing it's built through ca so we, we don't just sort of disappear off the face of the earth after the first couple of months so yeah um, and and you learn a lot through that. I mean, through shepherding projects, through construction. So that's that's been important. Yeah, our our passion was design. I I, I definitely did not get into this out of some entrepreneurial spirit. It was hmm. the entrepreneurial spirit was necessary for me to design the way I wanted to design. It was kind of the other way around. Of yeah. I, it was becoming clear that as long as I work for somebody else, they may not have the vision I have for what a design practice should be. Um, especially in the engineering world, where it's really, really hard to find people who think like Julian and I do. Um, yeah. So it, it was it was an interesting need, um, and the business is just kind of the byproduct. Yeah. You know, some, some of the uh, like like as Chris mentioned, those tech the tech Monterey projects were fantastic because you you'd fly down there and would be in meetings with the not just the Saki's group but with their client, the client at tech and. You'd have these massive collaboration sessions of 30 people in the room for a few hours discussing design stuff like that and i think uh, personally one of my most interesting moments was when uh, that lacaretta building chris had mentioned they said that they wanted glass walls that disappeared i said well why don't why don't we 
have the whole building just sink into the ground and that was my favorite moment Mm. and and everybody's like what are you talking about and we're like well we could do it this way or that way or that way and coming up with uh, all these different ideas and showing precedents well it's funny i was actually able to show projects i'd done back in those old theater days of exactly how to do it and they're like oh but it's going to leak i'm like oh no here's how you do it because well at that point we had the facade side of the office the skins group was going so like oh yeah we know how to do this no problem we got this and they're all like really then eventually like i don't think we should do this this just seems a little too out there (laughs) and ended up giving up on the on the movable floor idea because originally it was just like we want to drop this so that we can turn it into an all open space and you know sometimes it's a theater space sometimes it's just a cafe like it wanted to be a very flexible space that could open up to the outside and so instead it just became more like nano wall but uh, originally we were going to drop the entire building so that the roof was the floor when it's open but um yeah they didn't go it's for good that. to have clients at least at least the architect was listening to us like okay yeah we'll, we'll give them a few minutes talk through this now they thought about well, it long what... and hard because pablo said a few things to me in the past like you think we really could have done that like, oh yeah we could have done yeah. that. absolutely <laughs> but that's what i love about you guys is where you you're the one pushing those ideas and a, a lot of engineers that won't go named you know you have to they'll give you one option and then you say well what about that oh yeah that works too why didn't well, you tell me about that uh yeah well we want to be that bad influence that. you know it, we, we <laughs> want to know everything give you wanted trouble. the building to be yeah before you called it because what ends up happening a lot on projects, more than you'd ever want to admit, is compromises get made before they need to be. And mm. if I know what the building wanted to be before you made the compromise of like, oh, this spam looks too big. I'm going to put a column here. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that to try to make it a little more realistic. Like I wanted to see what it was before it was realistic in your mind. Because sometimes we can do that oftentimes easier than where you compromise to. Like there's just subtle moves of eccentricities and geometry of like a six inch move can change everything. And Hmm. we can get a lot closer to that vision if we know why you made the moves you made and why you were doing what you were doing. We can start to understand where it came from and evolve our options that we give you for that. And then I always say we got to spin that around of when we give you the option, because there's always going to be options, whether you want them or not. Um, we have to explain why each option is what it is. And yeah. once you start ex- establishing all these different, for lack of a better term, rules, um, you can start to really bend them and manipulate them into it almost feel like you broke the rules. Um, hmm. And that, that's where the better projects come. And it's not always these crazy expensive things. We do the same thing with ultra low income housing, like subtle cantilevers on a building, which most people instinctively think are expensive, can be used to save money. Like hmm. We're doing a museum now, um, Museum of Nebraska Art with uh, BBH. It's all mass timber building. Hmm. And we like, and they had all these different like kind of reaches and overhangs and they're worried that they were going to have to come out of project. I'm like, no, let's arrange them this way and it'll actually make the beam smaller. And it was counterintuitive because you just got to think about the way things bend. And granted, I'm not saying everybody should be able to do that, but that's what we're here for. And we're supposed to be that guy <laughs> and uh, give you all the, the tools and options and help you guys make those kind of decisions. 
So has there been a project that that you pushed, like everything came together perfectly? Like you pushed, you pushed that idea. They said yes, and it and it exceeded expectations. And it's like this is what NYL is about. I think it changes a lot. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know if there's ever a project that's everything in it. Right. I mean, cool. Chris mentioned Marcus Hall earlier. That's got a lot of really cool moves in it. Um, the other one that I like to think is, it's still not built, but it was that stadium we did. We did a 60,000-seat oh. soccer stadium in Dubai, mm. which is like an Arabian bowl in the desert. So with the whole bowl shape elevated off the ground, it was going to be the first FIFA stadium you could walk under. Mm. Um, but the whole bowl is is a structural diagrid, which is working as the facade support, plus it's working as the pure structure supporting all the concourses that wrap around this bowl. And the roof. This is, yeah, and it supported the roof, the tension trusses across the roof. Everything was working together. It was all counterbalancing the whole system. We had, we had some insanity where at one stage our architect said, okay, how few columns could you really put this whole stadium on? And we got it down to eight. Oh, no, we had a four at one tree. They were, they were super cool. They were absolutely Yeah, why do you need more than four? That's, that's all the, every corner. <laughs> but then that one was interesting and in we were, it was with Perkins and Will out of Boston and um, mm. we were working on another project with them at the time and you know I was in the office and they go hey we got these guys over here working on a competition you got a few minutes they, they just got some structural questions uh, and I sat down we had a few beers then like after about like an hour hour and a half I changed my flight and we, we worked on it for like another day and a half and we went through like five schemes and the, the bowl concept won uh, with our team. And then we submitted it to the, the overall design competition against like every big name architect who could do a stadium you could imagine. And, and we won. Hmm. And uh, so after winning it, they go, all right, that's great. We need DD in four months. <laughs> that's insane. And all we had at this point, yeah. is like we had a couple of structural boards. We had a couple of boards for the facade. You know, of course, we had some algorithms for the competition design to develop the diagrid, but that was it. All you that's have all to design is four four columns. What are you talking about? That's that's a, like two weeks. I know, I'm like a quitter. Um, <laughs> oh, then it got better because um, we had you know design build mentality over there. So we had a contractor involved, and every week we had to update everything. everything. And when I say everything, I'm we had to give them paint quantities from our model, not the mm-hmm. architectural model, from the structural model. So formwork, rebar, uh, volume of concrete, tonnage of steel, paint, fireproofing, all parametrically driven through our model so that I can export them and post-process them in a spreadsheet to present every week. And I'm pretty sure they um, they wanted us to fail because we were the only company not owned by the contractor on the project. Mm. Uh, there's a, but most people, I don't even know if I'm supposed to say this, but Perkins & Will is actually owned by a company called DAR out of uh, Lebanon. Hmm. And um, hmm. they owned all these different mechanical engineering firms. They had their own structural engineers. And Perkins and Will, thankfully, were wonderful to us and saying, oh, no, they stay. They're the ones who came up with us with us. You, you need to keep them. I don't want to lose the design. And I feel like every time after one of those meetings, Stephen Sefton was Perkins and Will's like, thank you for keeping the design. Because you could tell they just wanted a column every 60 feet. That's what the contractor wanted. Yeah. And no matter how many renderings we did about how bad it would look, it was, they still wanted that. And our fight was to keep that out. But uh, 
unfortunately, uh, that one's not built yet. Hmm. Well, the, the, the intensity, as Chris mentioned, I mean, we, we got to go over there and meet with the local engineers who were going to execute it all and would be in this unair-conditioned room for three days. With no window. In the middle of Dubai. It's insanely hot. It was, the meetings went on and on and on. And I think it was only, what did we stop on the way to the airport and the flight on the way out where we uh, we all decided to go up to the rooftop bar that overlooked like the Palm Islands. Yeah. Mm. And we had an hour off where we could have a few beers and, and celebrate what we'd just achieved. That, that was a really cool moment. Yeah. <laughs> Watching the sunset. I know you like to ask about moments. That was a pretty darn good moment. What I also loved about that, that office, you know, the, the whole floor was this engineering, multidiscipline engineering firm. But on the sunny side of the office is where they put all the mechanical engineers. And they all sweat all day. <laughs> and they're like, yeah, it's your fault, guys. You get to sweat. Yeah. <laughs> Those guys are designing so much AC into projects. Yeah. It just <laughs> dreams. Oh, it's funny. <laughs> But yeah, that was that was one of those was, moments. Like, holy crap! I can't believe we just did this because we got it on budget. Because everything is about budget at that point, mm. um, and trying to set, keep as much of the design as we could and stay on budget. That was the goal of the whole trip, and uh, yeah. to, to actually have the project moving forward at that point, still with with the design intact, we were all like sigh of relief, exhaustion, and uh, need for a drink. It was pretty high. <laughs> That's awesome. So. So what's what, you guys know? What's next? Do you know how to keep keep being excited? Is it is it easy now because everybody's just ringing up your phones saying, "Give me give me some dome stadiums." Let's oh, do. Oh, we this. don't do that many dome stadiums. Uh, I like to think we do more thoughtful projects. Inverted domes, sorry, bowl stadiums. Uh, what 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 do you get passionate about now? And where where did, where's the direction of the firm going? Well, bicarbon is definitely my biggest passion right now. Of hmm. How to how to deal with that, you know, and it's not just about mass timber. We we got seven actual actual mass timber projects in our office, which which is a lot for our firm. I mean, we we've done a pretty good job of reducing the number of projects per year. I think what are we down about forty to fifty projects a year we do now, hmm. um, yeah. and seven of them right now are mass timber, which is awesome. But there's so many more things we can do when it comes to carbon reduction and emissions reduction in terms of how we treat the building and you know the facade side comes into this a lot too because we have obviously the embodied carbon which is on both sides and then we also are when we get the facades we're balancing operational and embodied carbon and there's so much greenwashing out there and there, there's a lot of people talking about it but not actually knowing how to do it and a lot of the things that i talked about you know with structural elegance earlier of like what we were able to do in mexico we're bringing a lot of these kind of conversations back of different ways of tessellating and laying out structures and form finding and pattern finding to reduce material. And, um, you know, everything from, you know, this elegant form to do a long span to why are we using 16 gauge like H studs in our partitions when we get away with 18? Just that change is 21% of the embodied carbon at like H. And the reason we do 16 is so that the guy designing the rain screen doesn't have to think. I'd rather design a little bit more. Labor is renewable. We talk about renewable resources. Labor is renewable. That ain't going away, hopefully. Um, but you know, subtle reductions in material like that are huge. And then you take into what we can do with just our, our cladding choices or 
how we build our mixed designs. Like Marin County near San Francisco has got you know great code developed to try to reduce the amount of cement we're using and different ways of bringing in more supplemental cementing materials. And we're trying to bring that into our projects and setting these kinds of budgets. It's more than just saying, yeah, put fly ash in. There's so much more we can do because cement's obviously the evil material right now. And then steel, like how we specify steel. Is it coming from electric arc burners? Anyway, I can get into the geekdom of this. And uh, we've been lecturing on it for a long time. Hell, but way back when, we used to refer to it as embodied energy. When we were doing a CSU lorry building, we, this is a wonderful concrete building that we reinforced the building with carbon fiber so we wouldn't have to tear the building down. And we're able to save that and buy carbon. Those kind of renovations are things that get me jazzed. Um, there's a lot of polymer technology we're playing with right now. Um, one of the projects, the Denver Performing Arts Center is Fuel Theater. We're reclouding that theater, but rather than taking all the mullions that we're saving the mullions and then doing a protruded polymer over it and reglazing it so that now all these mullions that just leak like a sieve energy wise because they were just aluminum inside out are thermally broken. And hmm. um, we didn't have to throw the mullions out. We didn't have to go buy a whole new curtain wall. So it not only did it um, save and buy carbon, which was one of my cheap goals, it also saved money. It was cheaper. So, you know, it's it's stuff like that that I get uh, pretty fired up about right now. That wasn't clear. Um, oh, what other design? We, we're just getting spoiled rotten with who we yes, get to work with. Really, we do some great work. And it's not just uh, all these people out of town. Uh, we do a lot of great work with people here. Obviously, the, the Buell Theater, that's with Joseph Montalbano. Um, we get to work with a little bit of everybody. The problem is we run into like a lot of people here locally think, oh, we got to wait till we have this kind of project to bring these guys in. It's like, no, we, we do everything. Everything can be better. <laughs> well, some of our best works, like with, with Rob Pyatt, or with what stuff we do on the reservations, you know, mm. building net zero homes that can beat the cost of a double wide. I mean, that that's special. You know, those are the jobs I get, you know, kind of teared up about sometimes. Yeah, I think that, I mean, the international work is, to me, has always been fa fascinating bringing in, you know, traditions and cultures from other countries, meeting people from around the world and, and you know, gathering ideas. I mean, that was, uh, that's the reason why we called our company Studio NYL is ideas from London, ideas from New York and bringing it to Colorado. And now that's, that's been, you know, blown up exp exponentially. We're bringing ideas from all around the world uh, to how, how can we do buildings better and ha have fun? I mean. That's kind of what we're all about. Um, yeah. Well, thanks, guys. I mean, I just really appreciate you appreciate you in the the community and uh, just the work you do in the the integration with architects and uh, just the inspiring the kind of um, environment here. It's funny. I, I was going to say I, I look forward to really working on a real project with you. But because all all we've worked on is a little uh, shipping container health clinic that one time, but but then he went That's and said fun. that it's even those small projects. So those are uh, fun, you know. Yeah. I, I fall fall into the little fall into the trap. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, uh, we're not smart yeah. enough to do this for a good business. We do it for the fun projects, and sometimes <laughs> the fun projects. I mean, one of our early projects was a swing. It was a Gregory Gregory Friesen's yeah. treehouse swing. That was fun. No, we we want the fun stuff. I mean. We always say we want to work on great projects uh, with great people. Like it, it's got to be one of those two is the bare minimum to get us in the door. Like this shouldn't yeah. be like something that's not entertaining and fun. That's why we do this. It's fun. So if you go yeah. to these meetings and the people don't want to 
be that way and have a good time and try to you know push the boundaries of what we have within our limits of, of design for that building whether that's budget or reality and then what, what are we doing here why not why not push it and i don't want to hear budget yes yeah. schools need more design schools with was it the the, the ron filetti one I, with davis that we did a little uh, grant was like a decade ago but little school for $85 a square foot. It's one of the most beautiful buildings we ever did. And it was all because of mm. the subtle moves and, and the rigor that went into the design. And that, that's good design. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. The Aspen houses pay yeah. the bills nicely. And uh, we don't turn them down. But those, those projects are the ones that really, I can say, that's good design. When you do more with less. Yeah. Well, thanks for coming on, guys. Appreciate it. Awesome. Really appreciate you inviting yeah, Hopefully we'll see you in person soon. Cool. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Cool. <laughs>
we didn't get any of this approved. We're going to have to do this through fax. <laughs> That's crazy. We'll get approved eventually. But that, that was complete insanity. <laughs> were you guys were you guys there when 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 Roshkin and Bjarkingos came to yeah. do the and they the stripped talk off the ski gear on stage? Yeah, wasn't yeah. it? They, they like they had to be called off the mountain essentially and Oh yeah. Uh, yeah, Jerry was freaked out. Jerry was so he's like, What the hell are you guys doing? You're on stage in fifteen minutes. Well I think that's one of the oh, reasons wow. they, they started getting stressed out with the tequila thing. <laughs> oh, the, you... the, after that we all went out to dinner at that what was that place, a ski house or something? Oh my god, this is a beautiful little fancy restaurant where people are going, you know, people are there for like their anniversary dinner and stuff, and there's Rokin and Biake. I mean the the noise. And the chaos and the stories. Well, it was and the thing that's funny hilarious. about it is normally Jerry's the loud one. Like, I know. Everywhere else we was... go, Jerry's the loud one. And that was the thing I was always, when you go down there, you know, they had little icons near everybody's desk, like who their personality was. And so Jerry and Michelle shared an office. So there's like, you know, Michelle like this. And then there's a little helmet on Jerry's character with like four stars, like he's the general. And the thing that's funny is like at AMD, Jerry was the loud, obnoxious one. Like he was yeah. now. Now he's with Michelle. He's got to be the straight man. It's like it's like a comedy duo. Well, you have to like kind of switch roles all of a sudden. Well, as you said earlier, though, Chris, every time we went down there, I mean, like for a grand opening, like the the, the Interlomaster. Oh my God! I mean, we had that amazing dinner, and then Michelle comes out with the Aquafina bottle. With no, that was Finiteca. That was insane. No. So we're having the med cow from his friend who just sort of mixed up some really good stuff. Yeah, he basically he's like, Oh, let's have Mescal. And at the time Mescal was not big in the United States. Like it's not like it is now. And he's like, oh, I'm gonna bring this out. It's great. You guys gotta try it. And it comes up in like this big aquafina bottle with masking tape that says Bueno on it. <laughs> and like, what the hell are we drinking? <laughs> it's like <laughs> But it was really quite fantastic. And at the Cineteca one we go to the opening for that because this is actually unique because they invite us to openings of buildings. Most of the buildings we do in the States, the engineer yeah. never gets invited. Um, so we go to the opening and we're the only Americans at the Cineteca. Yeah. So they just seat us and then eventually the president comes in, like not like the president of the Cineteca, the president of the country comes in because it was his legacy project. Uh, mm. Their legacy, like we give our presence museums and they leave office down there. You have to finish a, uh, a building in the end of your term, and that's your legacy job. So this is his. And um, they seat us like four seats over from him, like <laughs> right behind, like one row back and four seats over. I could reach over and touch him. And I'm like, yeah, I don't see this happening in the U.S. Because <laughs> they just want to assume we're like some government official or something, because why no, would these you know, Americans be here? And it was Julian, Ted, and I. And it, it was a total trip. <laughs> And meanwhile, the, that was, the staff in Rokin's office were like in the back row. I felt horribly guilty. Like we were closer than Michelle and Jerry were. Which which president was that? Oh, I forget. I oh, should know this. The Sensei Fox. Or oh, it's yeah. the Sensei Fox. Because yeah. that, that's funny because um, when I was in grad school in, uh, in Tatiana Babao's studio, we went down there, but uh, we were kind of invited by a... Um, a, a past student of Yale and, and it happened that his dad was one of the previous presidents. And so it was, it was Zadia. And so, you know, we went down there and everybody knew him and he 
threw us a good party and it was just it was awesome and and then we come back and and he's like okay i'm gonna take everybody out to to a lobster dinner you know outside picnic stuff and yeah this is awesome and and um but we didn't bring any beer and and he's like oh don't worry my dad's bringing it and 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 so his dad just pulls up in a buick and he's like hey help me help me take the the coolers of beer out and so i was just carrying the coolers of beer with the president of mexico out to these picnic picnic tables and wild eating lobster with them and yeah it's just crazy uh it's fascinating yeah i think the the other one i always liked was uh was on marcus i feel like it sounds like we only done like three projects the way we're telling the stories today but marcus hall has got the big cantilever and the glass hanging from the roof and you know we're, they're trying to value engineer the building they're trying to put columns underneath that big cantilever and they're all arguing about oh we could do this we could do this and i'm trying to explain like how much it would save because we'd run the numbers and and it wasn't really that much and you know this is the vision and and eventually, Peter Boland's just silent and goes, you know, I've been doing this a long time. A lot of people think I'm pretty good at it. I say it works. And that was it. No more VE conversation on that. And everybody moved on. And I, my, I'm just sitting there going, when am I good enough where I could do that? How do I get yeah, there? How do I be yeah. that guy? Because um, he was that good. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, he was fantastic. And um, that was a great moment. <laughs> So the question is, how many times have you tried that now? Where you just say, oh. hey, it works. And they say, no, it's Yeah, not. I, I'm worried keep, people keep think trying. I'm trying to be like a Jedi or something if I do it. Um, I, I've never had the guts to <laughs> yeah. say it. Well, we're, uh, we're in a supporting role. Let's put it that yeah. way, shall we? We've, we've won yeah. more of those debates than lost, I think, over the years. Like, there are, there are a few that have just been crazy. <laughs> But I think, I think we're willing, I mean, when we when we come up with these crazy ideas, so we always have to back it up. And as, as you say, we're either, we're either having to do it by designing it the way people expect to see it and then design it the way that we really want to do it and prove that it really isn't going to well, cost more. And, and, and you, you, you got to do it in a way that you don't just yeah. show them the numbers. What you do is you break it down into right. like this kit of parts and say, okay, you guys have done this. Like I actually used to a lot of times steal stuff off their websites and explain how it's the same as what's on their website and start to walk them through it. But like, okay, you know how to do this kind of a, a trust. Okay. We got that here <clears throat> under that. We're going to do this. You did that on this project. And we're starting to like show them like this stuff's really not that hard. It just is arranged uniquely. And it's that arrangement that made it special. And, and they go, yeah, I guess I can see that. Or just walking them through it and, you know, step-by-step step of how the pieces come together it's the point now where we're actually doing exploded renderings as engineers and facade designers, which hmm. are walking through step-by-step yeah. step of how the building goes together. And that is how we, we sell the ideas because if we just give them the drawings, we'll get these astronomical numbers back. And we started doing that in the pre-bid meetings, more so in the facade than the structure. But Well, you, you did it on the structure and on techno. Yeah. We had to persuade them oh, that we do the 60 foot cavity with five stories of buildings. Oh, that's not fair. Five stories of library. Some books. <laughs> five stories of library. Yeah. And, and, and this was, this was persuading the uh, engineering gurus at Tech Monterey, which is kind of like MIT of, of Mexico. Uh, you had to sit in front of a board 
telling them what was going on and convincing them that, yeah, if they stuck the comms out in the end, it's going to cost more because the ground conditions are terrible. Hmm. Well, we also so, had the problem on but, that yeah. one of the old library that we were replacing and using the same site was surrounded by these wonderful old growth trees that like were right up against the walls of the library, like at least their, the tree canopy was. Yeah. So we had a, we, the building that Sasaki developed as a courtyard building. And that was done mainly because of the dynamics of what the architecture wanted to be and trying to bring more light in because it was so what such a wide building. And we go, okay, that's where the cranes go. So our Revit model actually had the cranes in it. Every time, we, we, it, that's one of the things that's nice about Mexico. We can kind of tread over the line of means and methods a little bit and show them how to build it. Whereas I do that here, I get my hand slapped pretty hard. But um, we're always treading the line pretty tight of just showing like, okay, this is how we put it together. This is how you build it. And more often than not, we win. Because um, otherwise we buy fear and you get no mm -hmm. value out of what they're afraid to do on the building. The better we explain it, the better we detail it, the better we walk them through the process you know, the better the number comes back. And then we shouldn't have to do that. But if we want it built the way we want it, that's what we have to do. Yeah. yeah. If you want to push it. Yeah. You know, I, I told you guys, I, I just like was racing here from, from Raw Creative. We had a yeah. studio tour of them and, and you know, we, 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 they were talking about you guys a little bit um, doing a project with you, but it's just saying the same thing, right? Of w we were created because someone said the contractor is going to say that light fe feature is $200,000 and they're saying, no, we can do it for 80,000. This is how here it is. Right. You know, yeah. it's, well, you it's see that, in that, your other that spirit of trying interviews, to yeah. like Brian Dale, half his stuff's about that. Mm-hmm. Um, mm -hmm. did that too. You know, there's, there's, mm -hmm. you know, that's how like Huff projects really got their better work in the early days. Yeah. They built it themselves. And it wasn't like, oh, we're going to be a GC. No, they literally have an entire carpentry, finished carpentry shop in their building. It's, they, they, I think that's what it comes like. You have to get into the craft of building. You know, it's so easy to draw stuff and it looks feasible. But unless you really understand how these things come together and built it yourself, got your hands dirty, it's hard. That's, that's something we spend a lot of time doing. Like we call it our R&D where we'll go you know, like when I we did start learning Ram Earth, I went down to Oracle, Arizona and learned it from uh, Quentin Branch. I don't know if you ever met Toby Branch. His son lives here. Mm -mm. But Quentin Branch built most of, um, I just lost his name, Rick Joyce's Rick Joyce. uh, houses. So we went down there and built oh, yeah. Quentin's house with him. Like we yeah. actually, we convinced him yeah. that he had to do an, insula uh, an insulated wall. So we, it was, so it was Rick Sommerfeld, Rob Pyatt and I, went down and you know took a long weekend and just started convincing him we we're going to do a, an insulated rammed earth wall and built it on the north side of his house and and it was great and then we went and built uh with cu denver's design build we did the wind catcher house with them out in utah yeah and then uh, we did a house here in boulder with with rob pyatt all, all using the insulated rammed earth that we developed there and you know we did the same thing with terracotta and you know digital fabrication we, we go and we learn the toys and then we add it into the algorithms we use for the computation design and that's how we come out with it it's um it's part of the process and uh, yeah it helps the credibility that if you've poured concrete before or you've done like when you go out there and you just have never built anything yourself in your life 
you know, they don't trust you. So you can say, yes, I've done this personally. It's different. That's why I love the design build program that Rick runs. It's that's the kind of people I want working for us is people who built things who understand reality as opposed to what the math says. Math's just part of it. No, it's, it's so inspiring. I mean, I was even, I was trying to find your um, five gallon bucket project on your website and I couldn't find it. On <laughs> It'll there. be there soon. What? Well, websites a few years out of date. Okay. You know, but that's just, the, you know, that's the stuff that I get so pumped about and, and it's, I'm so impatient and I'm just like, I need to do good stuff right now. Let's Well, do you know the story and... of why it's buckets? Because you in Mexico City, you'll get it. So, you know, you think of like parking day, right? Where you build a little mm. parklet in a parking spot. This is supposed mm. to be the opposite because like in Mexico City, oftentimes the version of valet parking is a spackle bucket full of concrete and you drive up, you pay the guy, he moves the bucket, and you park the car, right? <laughs> yeah. Right. So we decided we're going to take over a small part of the park. Well, we, it was, this is Jerry and um, I'm terrible at names today. Help me, Julian. Uh, Sasha. Sasha and Johanna from. Yeah. So Jerry and Sasha came up with the idea of doing that. And then of course they started playing with the form. But, you know, when I talk about like computational design, I often lead in with that project because that was all grasshopper script at first of how we develop the thing. And it's all twist ties, rope, and buckets but they're all yeah. structural and the, and the sand in the end of the buckets to stop yeah. it not up so when the wind blows it doesn't blow away so the curl doesn't but get that goes back, yeah that goes back to your basics of engineering you just got to figure out what you're doing and uh you know that's what engineering is it's common sense with math applied <laughs> so much of our like stuff that. is low tech and dumb it just doesn't look like it. it's yeah and, that, and that's really part of what it takes to get them done is you have to make it simple and elegant and then it works yeah i love that now i I just appreciate you guys' support and listening and checking it out and thanks for coming on that's great this is sarah hubbard host of you and me kid a podcast about starting and raising a family on your own we just launched season two and i'm speaking with single moms those still considering and experts in relevant fields to give you a real sense of what the day-to-day experience of solo parenting looks and feels like plus this season i've partnered with california cryobank the number one sperm bank in the u.s so wherever you are in the process this podcast provides some support humor, and helpful information. Listen to You and Me Kid wherever you get your podcasts.